0: Welcome to Whistle Stop, Slate's new podcast about curiosities from the campaign trail. I'm John Dickerson. Who was the candidate who started it all, the first to ever hit the campaign trail? William Henry Harrison. We'll talk about him, the political act of taking umbrage, and the campaign of 1840 that started all this madness we chronicle here. That's coming up in a minute. But first, a word from our sponsor. Why did Sam Slater dive into the frozen river in Pawtucket, Rhode Island in December of 1790? And what did that have to do with the Industrial Revolution? You'll find answers to these questions. In Turning Points in American History, a great offering by Great Courses, which is sponsoring this podcast and which I've been listening to, there looks into little moments of American history that tell the larger story of America. Shays' Rebellion, the Industrial Revolution, the birth of baseball— what I love is not just the details, but the context that Professor Edward O'Donnell puts it all into. There is a special offer for those of you listening to Whistle Stop from The Great Courses. If you order Turning Points in American History, you get 80% off the original price. So go to thegreatcourses.com slash whistle stop. That's thegreatcourses.com slash whistle stop and get 80% off the original price of Turning Points in American History. Our whistle stop today is Friday, the 21st of February, 1840, and we are at the corner of High and Broad Streets in Columbus, Ohio. The Whig Party is holding its convention. But this is no day for a rally. It's pouring rain, and everywhere there is mud, as one person remembered it. The roads were all mud, deep mud, nothing but interminable, unmitigated mud. The Ohio Confederate newspaper said the mud was waist high, but it doesn't matter because there are people Everywhere, and they are in an excitable state. They have come to march, and they keep coming. Hour after hour wrote the paper. The tide rolled in, and the multitude accumulated, rending the blue welkin with their cries. There were veterans from the Revolutionary War who marched. One carried a banner that said, Last of the Lifeguards of General Washington. There were wagons and carriages and drummers. A team of horses comes down the lane, dragging a canoe that reads on its side, Tip a canoe forever. And that is in reference to the Whig candidate, William Henry Harrison, the hero of the Battle of Tippecanoe against the Shawnee Indians, or at least they're saying he's a hero of that battle anyway. Then, here comes what looks like a ship, a brig, carrying 30 men. It's on wheels, and it's being pulled by horses, and on the sail is a vast portrait of Harrison that reads The Farmer of North Bend, North Bend, Indiana, where he was governor of the Northwest for a period. The ship is listing in the mud, but the 30 men on it don't care because they're drinking hard cider, which is fermented apple juice, and they are sauced. They're drenched from the rain, and they're sauced, and Behind the ship is a rolling platform from which barrels of hard cider are being dispensed from ladle to cup for anybody who wanted it. Then, as anybody would expect, rolls behind it a life-sized log cabin on wheels with more drunken men on its roof, eating cornbread and singing rude songs. It's got coonskins hanging from the walls of the cabin. That's the symbol of the Whig party. And then scrawled on the side is hard cider. There's a man with a pole with a bald eagle tied to the top of it. There is another huge float rolling down, and that's of Fort Meggs, which is a fort from a famous battle Harrison fought in the War of 1812. It has a brass cannon that fires. Men watching all of this happen are on rooftops waving their hats. Women are opening the windows and waving handkerchiefs that have log cabins on them in the rain showers. One newspaper wrote, it was one dense, enthusiastic mass of human bodies on either hand, so far as the eye can extend. There was a 3,275-pound ox that was barbecued in the public square. This is the election of 1840. It is a garden of delights of electoral history. It is the Woodstock of elections. It is the Studio 54 of campaigning. It's the election that cracked it all open. All the gooey madness that we know about now, the empty appeals to the crowd, the false advertising, the paradoxes, the booze, and the circus atmosphere all started with this campaign. In fact, we can thank the hard cider and lock cabin campaign, as it came to be known, for the very origin of the word booze. The hard cider, that fermented apple, that was served at some rallies was served in bottles shaped like glog cabins, and it was sold by a Philadelphia hooch purveyor whose name was E.C. Booze. Long may be the glory and the praise to his name. Many of you know William Henry Harrison as the ninth president of the United States who served for the shortest time of any president, 32 days before he died. He was also the last president to serve who was born a British subject, and he was the oldest before Ronald Reagan. But we are concerned with dear William Henry Harrison because Harrison was the first presidential candidate to actually campaign for the job. And even more important, in my view, is that he was the author of the venerable American political tradition of taking umbrage at perceived slights and turning them into campaign weapons. A little on umbrage. Politicians and political parties use umbrage on the theory that the best offense is to take offense. So I give you two examples. In 2012... Hillary Rosen, a Democratic strategist, not connected in any way to the Obama campaign, made a crack on Twitter about Ann Romney. She said she'd never worked in her life. And Republicans rushed to the microphones to take offense on Ann Romney's behalf. Of course, women who stay at home with their family know what it's like to work. This put Democrats in a pinch and on the defensive. And the Obama campaign... Knew this. And so anticipating the trouble they'd get in with women, they rented fleets of buses under which they threw Rosen repeatedly to show that they didn't want to associate themselves with her remarks. In 2008, in the Democratic primary, a picture shows up on the Drudge Report of Barack Obama, and he is wearing the native dress of Wajir. I think it's pronounced. It's a rural area in northwestern Kenya. And the rural dress had him in a headdress. Drudge reports said that Clinton staffers were passing around the picture, and one Clinton staffer apparently asked to Drudge, wouldn't we be seeing this picture on the cover of every magazine if this were Hillary Rodham Clinton? The Obama campaign cried foul, said that the Clinton campaign was leaking the photo to Drudge, and that they were doing so as a way to make issue of Obama's race and raise the question of Kenya and religion and all that. And so for several news cycles, the Clinton team was on the defensive. That's what Umbridge looks like today. But how did it start? There were a few complaints about William Henry Harrison The Democrats leveled against him. He was, again, the Whig candidate. The first was that he was not a war hero. He was a petticoat general, they called him. Obviously, there were no women voters yet, and it was basically an attempt to swift boat him. The second charge was that he was too old for the job. Some called him granny. He was in his mid-60s, which was pretty old. The life expectancy at the time was about your mid-40s. So that's a charge that's been leveled against Reagan and Bob Dole and John McCain. The third Democratic argument against Harrison was that he was a puppet of strategists and that he refused to tell the country what he believed. Every candidate, but particularly George W. Bush, has faced a version of this charge. One paper said of Harrison that he was the dupe of designing knaves. I love that show, Designing Knaves. These attacks all sound pretty familiar in today's politics, but the context of the 1840 campaign was totally unfamiliar to what we know today. Presidential candidates didn't campaign. Neither the incumbent nor the challenger. They didn't go to rallies. They didn't give speeches. Since the founding of the country, it was seen as beneath the presidency to actually campaign for the office. And the quote most often used to describe this norm was that the presidency was a job to be neither sought nor denied. So you stood for the office and like so much in the early republic, George Washington was the president who everybody tried to model and he just had the news of his presidency delivered to him and that's what you were supposed to do. So if people were saying mean things about you as they always did, you had to take it and hope that your allies would defend you. Candidates also didn't offer their policy prescriptions. There were plenty of issues to talk about—abolition, tariffs, internal improvements, the Alien and Sedition Acts—but presidents were supposed to be chosen for the character they brought to the office, not their correct position on a particular policy. So Harrison said that he declined, therefore, to give any further pledge or opinions on the subjects which belong to the future legislation of Congress— So this was about the president treading on the powers of Congress by offering any views on policy. To do so, said Harrison, would more than almost anything else tend to consolidate the whole substantial power of the government in the hands of a single man, a tendency which, whether in or out of office, I feel it my most solemn duty to resist. Nicholas Biddle, a famous banker who was supporting the Whigs, put it a little more entertainingly about how Harrison should campaign. He said, let him not say a single word about his principles or his creed. Let him say nothing, promise nothing. Let no committee, no convention, no town meeting, even extract from him a single word about what he thinks now or what he will do hereafter. Let the use of pen and ink be wholly forbidden as if he were a mad poet in bedlam. This was in keeping with the Whig Ideology, Which was to have a weak executive and a strong Congress, but it was also good politics. They had no interest in talking about positions and the Democratic newspapers, of course, called them out on this. Here's one of them. General Harrison being a candidate for the presidency is questioned by the American people who desire to vote understandingly on the exciting and important subjects now agitated before the country. But the policy of the general and his friends is to keep dark. They think they can get the most votes, and that is all they seem to think of, by cheating the people, by false representations, to suit different latitudes. The Whigs just wanted to be the anti-incumbent party because there had been a crash in 1837 and the Whigs wanted voters just to blame the incumbent. Mitt Romney pursued a similar strategy in 2012. But there was a countervailing force and that countervailing force was universal male suffrage. The election of presidents had gone from being the job of white-propertyed men to being something that all men took part in. And indeed, some 80 percent of the eligible electorate cast ballots in the election of 1840, making it the largest turnout percentage in history. So it became a heck of a lot more important to appeal to the hearts and minds of the general public, the journeymen, the farmers and the shopkeepers. The Harrison campaign found a way to kind of solve this problem through umbrage taking. The opportunity for the umbrage strategy came thanks to a Democratic Baltimore newspaper, a correspondent named John DeZiska was a correspondent for the Van Burenite newspaper, The Baltimore Republican. And he said of Harrison, give him a barrel of hard cider and settle a pension on him, and he will sit the remainder of his days in his log cabin by the side of the fire and study moral philosophy. Remember when Barack Obama said people cling to their guns and religion, and people who believed in the Second Amendment and went to church got offended and kept talking about how offended they were? This is the exact same thing. The Whigs took umbrage at the snooty reference to the log cabin and the hard cider. The Democrats might sneer at the common man and his simple pursuits, but Whigs were going to champion the common man and his habits. A Whig newspaper wrote, This slur filled the hearts of hardy frontiersmen of the laboring man in the West and South who lived in humble log cabins with indignation. That's why the log cabins were rolling in the streets. That's why hard cider was rolling down gullet to gullet. The hard cider and the log cabin were imbued with the characteristics of the common man, which elevated them to these grand national symbols. How grand did it get? Well. Daniel Webster, who was kind of bummed that he wasn't born in a log cabin, nevertheless gave a long speech about how members of his family had been born in a log cabin and he'd seen a log cabin and one time he got a splitter from walking near a log cabin. Anyway, he talked about the benefit of being born in a log cabin. He said, a man who by his capacity and industry has raised himself from a log cabin to eminent station in this country is of more than ordinary merit. So this became a people's campaign. The people are coming, read one banner at a March. Another said the people must do their own voting. That's why all these people were at the corner of High and Broad Street in the rain. At several of the Ohio rallies for Harrison, A guy named uh, Buckeye Blacksmith got on stage. Remember, these were all-day affairs, and he was wearing his blacksmith apron and carried blacksmith tongs that he used to shred to ribbons the Democratic opposition press. He brought an anvil and a hammer, and he promised that he was not some broke-down lawyer. Essentially, this was Joe the plumber of his day. Harrison was now a hero of the common man. He was called the poor man's friend, the people's choice. It's important to realize that this was all hokum. Harrison was not a man of the people who'd grown up in a log cabin. I mean, you imagine him digging dissipated potatoes from the dry earth and scratching out his lessons at night on the shovel by the fireplace. But he grew up in one of the wealthiest homes in Virginia. His father was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. He'd been governor twice of Virginia. As an adult, Harrison had a 19-room house that it took two years to build. The glass in the house was imported from Europe. It had a circular staircase. It had a name, for God's sakes. It was called Grouseland. So he wasn't exactly the hard scrabble guy that he was being presented as. He was also presented as a war hero for the Battle of Tippecanoe, and there's a lot of debate about whether in the Battle of Tippecanoe, he didn't leave himself open to attack. Now, Tippecanoe was a pretty minor fight. His more famous exploits happened at Fort Meggs. Fort Meggs is one of the things rolling down the street, a model of Fort Meggs, and that's actually a battle where the British alliance with the Indians was shattered in the War of 1812, and Harrison was a big part of that, but there was a lot of benefit in rhyming, Harrison's running mate was John Tyler. And you couldn't do Fort Meigs and Tyler, too. Tippecanoe and Tyler, too, trip trilling off the tongue. Gail Collins, who wrote a great little tidy biography of Harrison, she quotes the New York diarist Philip Hone, who concluded the ticket had rhyme but no reason to it. And the reason the rhyme is important is because the songs helped whip up the crowds. And who doesn't like a good song when you're pickled in hard cider? Those songs were available to everybody because of the mass printing. So there was a log cabin songbook. There was a log cabin anecdote book at some rallies. The Whigs put a press, an actual press machine on a cart and wheeled it down the street printing off song sheets for people as the procession marched. As one New York uh, Whig wrote, Harrison was sung into the presidency, and the songs were incredibly goofy. What has caused the great commotion? Motion, motion, our country through? It's the ball a rolling on for Tippecanoe and Tyler, too. We owe the campaign of 1840. For many things, including the phrase, keep the ball rolling, what they're referring to in that song is a huge canvas ball that was rolled from rally to rally with campaign slogans written on it. Another song said, they said he lived in a cabin and lived on hard cider too. What if he did? I'm certain he's the hero of Tippecanoe. He's the hero of Tippecanoe. And, of course, the Democrats had their own songs, too. Hush-a-bye baby, the Democrats sang. Daddy's a wig before he comes home. Hard cider he'll swig. Then he'll be tipsy and over he'll fall. Down will come daddy. Tip, Tyler, and all. This is the second bout of Umbridge that pulls Harrison onto the campaign trail. Much of the campaign took place without Harrison actually campaigning. But then Harrison goes out and becomes the first candidate to ever actually campaign on the campaign trail. In all, he gave about two dozen speeches, thin guy of about medium height with dark eyes, raccoon eyes and a straight nose. And part of this was to answer the calumny against him that both he wasn't talking and that he was too old, that he was kind of an infirm person in his bed. So he goes on to the stump, doesn't offer any policy positions, but complains about how he's been so wronged. One account reads, he confessed that he had suffered deep mortification since he had been placed before the people of candidate for the highest office in their gift, nay, the most exalted station in the world, that any portion of his countrymen should think it necessary or expedient to abuse, slander, or vilify him. His sorrow arose not so much from personal, dear as it was to him, the humble reputation he had earned, as from public considerations. So you see, he must campaign not for his own personal reputation but because he couldn't let the democratic process be sullied by these kinds of attack on any candidate at these rallies, there was a lot of celebration of his war exploit. So soldiers who'd fought with him came on stage. There was several reunions in which tears were reportedly shed. At one, a British soldier who'd been fighting on the other side of him in the War of 1812 told the story of shooting at him 20 times, but he couldn't hit him because he was such a brave man. And Harrison answered this question that he was being kept away from people because... He didn't want people to know what he actually believed. The story goes, said Harrison, that I have not only a committee of conscience keepers, but that they put me in a cage, fastened with iron bars, and kept me in that, a correspondent wrote. To one who looked at his bright and speaking eye, the light which beamed in its rich expression, the smile which played upon his countenance, blending the lineaments of benevolence and firmness, who remembered also that he was listening to the voice of a son of Governor Harrison— one of the signers, the hero of Tippecanoe, the defender of Fort Meggs, the idea of William Henry Harrison in a cage was irresistibly ludicrous. The correspondent concluded with this rapturous remark. The whole bosom of the mighty West is literally heaving with emotion of gratitude, will and love for the modest but gallant old farmer from North Bend. Democratic papers covered these speeches, of course, far differently. They reported brawls, drunkenness, women were abused. There is one long account of a preacher who was threatened, and they fought back against this idea of him being the people's candidate, describing him as dressed in the finest kind of imported broadcloth from top to toe and very delicate kid gloves on his hands, looking more like some sprig of aristocracy emerging from a banking house or a ballroom than a farmer. But in the end, Harrison's umbrage campaign was quite successful. He won 234 electoral votes to 60 for Van Buren, a landslide that didn't exactly capture the narrowness of the victory. Harrison won by 145,000 votes of the two million cast. And the Whigs then went on to win the House and the Senate. And this is the kicker. Uh, After he was elected, at the end of his inaugural address, Harrison warned against the rise of political parties. Before concluding, he said, fellow citizens, I must say something to you on the subject of parties. To me, it appears perfectly clear that the interest of the country requires that the violence of the spirit by which these parties are at this time governed must be greatly mitigated, if not entirely extinguished, or consequences will ensue, which are appalling to be thought of. Here you had a man who owed his office to the fanciful tales and umbrage-taking created by a political party, who was now criticizing political parties. We'll never know what Harrison's re-election campaign might have looked like. The speech at his inauguration took two hours, and the story has it that Harrison gave the speech that long to once again prove to doubters that he wasn't too old and infirm. Exposed to the weather for two hours, he took ill, It was sick, and then died a month or so later, ushering in John Tyler, who until that moment had been so unknown that the phrase might as well have been, Tippecanoe and Tyler who? a characterization to which he no doubt would have taken umbrage. We'd love to hear what you think of Whistle Stop. Send us an email at podcasts at slate.com, or even better, leave us a review on the iTunes store. It helps firm up the weak lattice propping up my ego, and it helps spread the word. Head over to iTunes.com slash slate podcast. Thanks to our sponsor this week, The Great Courses. Remember, the turning points in American history, the Battle of Saratoga, the birth of baseball, and lots of other things at 80% off. Just go to TheGreatCourses.com slash WhistleStop. That's TheGreatCourses.com slash WhistleStop. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And our executive producer is Andy Bowers. WhistleStop is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. That's P-A-N-O-P-L-Y. Our Whistle Stop researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who rode by horseback, his lantern fading in the pitch of night to scare up the single copies of broadsheets like the Ohio Confederate, the last remaining copy of which was contained in the time capsule in the cornerstone of the Old North Church. We consider his brief imprisonment a tribute to the show and a sign of his dedication to America. I'll be back next week with more Tales from the Trail here on Whistle Stop. I'm John Dickerson.